You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are going to tackle a topic that is extremely important. Andrea and I are extremely open and vocal about our mental health issues, and we are really, we, we feel like it's really important to bring awareness to topics that relate to mental health, address and try to remove stigma associated to di- associated with diagnoses and treatments. And so today we're specifically going to talk about postpartum depression. And we have brought on a very special guest. And I know we say that often, but really today's guest is someone who we met in person, I guess it was a couple of months ago now at an event that had to do with um, science communication. And we just completely fell in love with him and his heart and his spirit. Dr. Craig Chepke, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, and I'd say the feeling is mutual. I fell in love with y'all's hearts and spirits as well and your your intellects, most importantly. Oh my God, Stop it. Can we clone you? <laughs> All right. So let, let me read your bio, your very impressive bio, so folks know who you are. So Dr. Kreb, Dr. Kreb, sorry, Dr. Craig Chepke is a board-certified psychiatrist and has been named a Distinguished Fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. He attended NYU School of Medicine and completed his residency training at Duke University. In addition to his clinical practice, Dr. Chepke is an adjunct associate professor of psychiatry for Atrium Health. Dr. Chepke has special interests in treatment-resistant and severe mental illness, movement disorders, and sleep medicine. His approach is to personalize treatment to each individual person from the newest leading-edge medications to older, underutilized treatments such as lithium and clozapine. Am I saying that correctly? I hope. So, okay. He also strongly emphasizes psychotherapeutic interventions and physical health and wellness through exercise, diet, dietary modification, and supplementation. He is active in clinical trials and serves on the board of directors of nonprofit organizations benefiting schizophrenia and Huntington's disease. Again, Craig, if it's okay, we'll call you Craig um, during the episode. We are please do. Yeah, we are so happy you're you're joining us today again. Thank you. So obviously, you have a lot of expertise in a variety of mental health related conditions. But you know, the when we were having dinner when we first met, you know, we started talking about depression and bipolar disorder, and and that led into this conversation about postpartum depression and this newly approved medication. And you know, you you know basically revealed to us that you've been very heavily involved in in women's mental health care, particularly regarding postpartum depression. And we knew that you were the perfect person to help us tackle this topic. So, um, you know, let's maybe kick off with a very quick summary. So postpartum depression is a serious clinical mood disorder. It can affect um, up to one in seven women after giving birth. But there's a lot of confusion and maybe misconceptions about what really is postpartum depression as it 
is differentiated from other types of maybe mood changes or even major depressive disorder. So, so Craig, can you kind of walk us through how would one differentiate postpartum depression from maybe the baby blues and even, you know, other sorts of clinical depressive disorders? Yeah, th- there is a lot of, um, I don't one could say controversy or misunderstanding, a confusion really around the topic in general. Uh, and one part thing is, is that we can define it different ways. There is a perinatal depression, and that's kind of an umbrella that encompasses both the antenatal depression. So if someone gets pregnant uh, or is, is pregnant and gets depressed during that time frame, and then postpartum depression. And so sometimes those are looked at differently. So uh, the baby blues that you mentioned uh, that is extremely common. So it's about 75% of women uh, will have something like the baby blues or um, so, or a postpartum anxiety, that sort of thing. But the critical factor is, is that the baby blues resolves within one to two weeks, and it is never associated with severe symptoms. So if someone is having symptoms of uh, the clinical depression, as many people say, uh, after a two-week period, or if it's within two weeks, but the, these are severe symptoms, well, right then and there, it kind of gets upgraded to a, a postpartum uh, depression or postpartum anxiety. Um, so in terms of the definition, though, there's even some disagreement there amongst the standardized governing bodies. So the American Psychiatric Association defines uh, peripartum depression as occurring at any time during pregnancy or up to four weeks postpartum. Now, why four weeks postpartum is a kind of a mystery to me. It seems pretty arbitrary. It doesn't seem uh, biologically based in any way, just that in general, we think in terms of weeks and months <laughs> as humans instead of defining scientifically what it actually should be, uh, especially contrasted against the World Health Organization. They define it as, as starting at birth and then going through 12 months postpartum. And then ACOG, the American College of Obstetrician and Gynecology, um, they have the broadest definition, which is any time during pregnancy up to that 12 months postpartum. So not even the major bodies who are really dealing with how to define different diagnoses have any sort of alignment really on what the, the diagnostic criteria are for the, the time frame at the very least. One thing that I'll point out, though, is that some claims data have shown that the average time it takes from the from birth of the child to the diagnosis of postpartum depression is four months. So not the four weeks that the APA gives. So the APA would say, oh, no, no longer postpartum depression. If it's five weeks after birth, uh, can't have anything to do with being postpartum, which I think is rather silly. The, uh, the DSM has a lot of different um, problems, and this is one of them. Also, it really, the, in terms of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is produced by the American Psychiatric Association and used to define all uh, psych- psychiatric diagnoses from, uh, from our field's perspective, then there actually is no such entity as postpartum depression. Mm. It's actually is c- c- considered major depressive disorder and has a specifier, a specifier with uh, postpartum onset. And there are other specifiers like with anxious distress, with um, with seasonal onset, and, uh, with, with melancholic features, and so on and so forth. So it actually doesn't even get its own diagnosis in the DSM, which again leads to some confusion. Uh, how how important is it per the APA if the, it's not even getting its own diagnosis separately? It's just a little add-on appendix to the major depressive disorder diagnosis, which I think is a shame because a major depressive disorder is already a mess diagnostically. Right. Uh, you have to meet five out of nine diagnostic <laughs> criteria, which mathematically gives you 227 different combinations of symptoms to get one diagnosis. 
Uh, clearly, we're just not smart enough to figure <laughs> out what the different subtypes are. But pretty clearly, I think the evidence in neurobiology show that postpartum depression is a fairly reliable subtype that seems quite distinct biologically. That's such an interesting point. Um, you know, and so, so, you know, some of those symptoms that you might find with, uh, you know, a broader major depressive disorder, but, but occurring after childbirth, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of, a lot of those, um, you know, feeling anxious, feeling angry, unprompted, the lack of enthusiasm or interest or emotion for activities that you previously did enjoy, um, um, lack of connection or interest in caring for your new baby, crying for no reason and unprompted, and of course, a lot of the um, the insomnia-related symptoms that are often associated with depression, mm -hmm. kind of that apathetic, um, you know, don't really know what to decide on, um, don't really have strong feelings one way or the other about things that impact your daily life, and often you can see either under-eating or overeating as well. Are there, are there any other symptoms in post postpartum depression that you might include there that that maybe differentiate beyond just, you know, the timing of onset? You kind of nailed the list of the symptoms there. And it really highlights you can have overeating or undereating. You could have too much sleep or not enough sleep. You can have it's such a broad diagnosis that, uh, as I said, 227 different combinations. And so uh, really uh, postpartum, uh, you can cover any sort of depression with that. Yeah. In fact, the uh, diagnostic criteria for major depressive episodes in bipolar disorder are the exact same as in the traditional unipolar major depressive disorder. Yeah. So it's such a broad category anyway that you, you really could capture virtually any sort of depressive disorder within that uh, very big tent that they've defined it as. Yeah. That's the unfortunate and it, part. And it's challenging, right? You know, I mean, I personally have major depressive disorder and my brother had bipolar and, you know, mm -hmm. most of his life before he died by suicide, he was manic. But when he had depressive episodes, they were... You know, I mean, the symptoms were very similar, but from an outsider looking in, someone who personally experienced it, in many mm -hmm. ways, his seemed to be even more severe or like more yeah. extreme. You know, so certainly there's a lot of variability in, in symptom presentation. And, and with postpartum, you know, you have the, to account for these really, really dramatic hormonal changes, right? Mm -hmm. You have yeah. all of these hormones that are preparing your body to, I mean, you have been preparing your body to grow another human being and then prepare to deliver that human being. And then afterwards, you have a very rapid shift to a whole different set of hormones for lactation and, and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. And that's not even mentioning a lot of the psychosocial factors. I mean, I know, Jess, you wanted to add something well, here. Well, I do. I mean, I, I know it's, I mean, Andrew, you're creating a perfect segue into really trying to understand some of the underlying mechanisms and, you know, risk factors. And it, I think we should definitely go there next. I guess, Craig, I'm sure we have a lot of people listening. You know, I, I have two kids and I remember when um, my group of girlfriends and I, we all kind of had babies around the same time and we all dealt with new motherhood differently. We experienced different things. But I mean, I think you, I think what was the statistic that um, one of you presented? It was like over 75% of women experience, there's something, baby blues, there's something that's going on after we have a child. This is a major, major physical, mm -hmm. emotional, mental change in our lives. At what point, and I know we're sort of saying it's difficult to tease out, but like, is there a certain 
is there some indicator of when a, a mom should reach out for clinical help? Is there some like, you know, red flag that it's like, okay, no, this, this is, this is different. We really need to reach out and get some help here. So I, I'm going to answer that. But first, I want to ask you a quick question, Jess. W were you ever screened for postpartum depression after either of your kids? I was, yes. I, anytime wow. I took the kids, I think, I, well, there were questionnaires that were handed to me in paper form at the pediatric mm -hmm. visits when I would take the mm -hmm. kids for their, you know, the shots in the first few months. Yeah. They didn't tell me that's what they were screening for, but putting on my <laughs> my scientist yeah. researcher hat, you know, they were asking questions about, yeah. I think it was screening me for, for depressive symptoms. That's awesome because uh, gosh, virtually always when I ask women that question, the answer is no, no one ever screened me for it. And that's, that's the sad part is that uh, the women fall through the cracks because there's so many different groups that are uh, healthcare professionals who uh, a woman who's just given birth is interfacing with. There's the OBGYN prior to the delivery and up to delivery and maybe a visit or so afterwards. Uh, that if they do have a mental health professional they're already seeing, there is the pediatrician uh, and then also the uh, a primary care provider. So with four different sets of healthcare professionals, at least you would think that it would be very hard to miss a diagnosis of postpartum depression. But it's hard to find something that you're not really looking for. And that's why 70 to 80 cases of postpartum depression go undiagnosed. And obviously, if it goes undiagnosed, it goes untreated. Because I think it's like a game of hot potato that the OBGYN thinks that psych is going to do it. Psych is thinking OBGYN is going to do it. They think P PCP is doing it. And everyone is thinking someone else is going to do the screening. And no one does it in many cases. And so the vast majority of women, when I ask that question, they'll say, oh, no, actually, no one ever asked me anything like that. So uh, really, the burden sh should fall upon the healthcare professionals. Uh, there, and any depressive screening tool can work for it, but there's one specifically developed and validated for postpartum depression called the EPDS, the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale. And it's a really nice one. Uh, honestly, I, it, the, the way the questions are written, I sometimes want to just use it for even <laughs> women who are not having, uh, who are not postpartum because it's just, it's a nicely written scale. It also has a little mini anxiety screener in there because it asks several questions about anxiety and rumination, things of that nature. So, uh, but whatever, it, whatever scale it is, something should be done. But uh, as a fallback, obviously, then it, it, women, uh, unfortunately, often have to advocate for themselves uh, with any form of their own health. Um, and so uh, the severity is one marker that, that I mentioned that if someone is having really profound symptoms, uh, not able to get out of bed, not able to take care of themselves, let alone the baby. And look, let's face it. It's not like a woman who's just given birth most of the time is only taking care of that brand new baby. Most of the time, what I've seen is that the woman is still responsible for running the household, taking care of the other kids, sometimes still working even. And so it's just a crushing burden that's that's on most women who have given birth. And that's that's even without postpartum depression. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You add PPD in there. And my gosh, I mean, just I can't imagine how how much suffering that this illness can create. So if someone's falling down in that ability to be able to meet those you know, potentially unrealistic demands, then then reaching out. But that's the difficult thing. And I know uh, one of you mentioned stigma earlier on is that, I mean, 
I have four kids. And so my wife shares with me some things that she gets from the, you know, mommy forums and on Facebook or whatever and social media. And really, literally any decision a new mother makes is wrong by, by at least 50% of other, <laughs> other moms who are on these mm-hmm. forums. Yeah. It you're doesn't a matter terrible what. mother and, and you're yeah. screwing yep. your, your kid up for life. Yep. <laughs> Completely. Yeah. Totally. It could be that, yeah, I gave my kid a bath today. Do you know baths are the leading cause of, <laughs> of mental illness later in life and will cause autism and mm-hmm. or whatever and it is? what are the knows. ingredients in the shampoo and the soap that you're using? And you know, every, every single thing. Right, right. Totally. That, that's not deuterated water that you're using, right? I mean, or is it alkaline water it's you're bathing the, the child in? I mean, yeah, no. It's, hope there's no fluoride <laughs> in that water. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. See, just right off the bat, we came up with like seven controversies that every individual woman is supposed to have the solution for as a new mom. And so it, it just and to so to be able to admit, hey, you know, I, I'm actually not enjoying my time with the baby. I, I'm, I'm not sure if I can take care of this baby. I, I mean, how is a new mom supposed to say that to anybody? There's so much. Whether it's a friend, yeah. someone on social media or to a healthcare provider. I mean, that's so it's all internalized. And so breaking that stigma that it is OK, this is a neurobiological, physiological disorder and it is for the, the best interest of the mom, the child, the other children, the entire family unit, that that's the main thing. So if anybody out there listening is in this position or knows someone who's in that position, a friend, a family, loved one, whatever, then please encourage them to reach out. Uh, any, any sort of struggling, because it never hurts to ask that if you don't know if it's something that is normal or abnormal, talk to the healthcare professional. Because that's literally our job is to assess it and educate you on what we think uh, is the likelihood of it being something normal or abnormal. Well, you know, Craig, I love that you say that because, you know, obviously for new moms, there's all this societal pressure and judgment, Mm -hmm. but just for humans in general, right? Like I remember that when I officially got diagnosed with depression, I was a graduate student and I had a friend who was a a medical student because I taught the clinical microbiology. So I met a lot of the med students Mm -hmm. and he, he was doing his psych rotation and he was like, you have eight out of the nine criteria. And I was like, oh, it's just grad school. Grad school is really stressful and it's really Mm -hmm. hard. And my PI, it's been tough and blah, 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 like just making excuses for it and, and not, you know, oh yeah, maybe it shouldn't be this hard to like get through the day and get out of bed and brush my teeth and take a shower and all that. So, you know, I mean, I think it it is so important to have these questions, these, these conversations on a, on a broader scale for everyone, but especially women who already have kind of the societal, the weight of societal expectations on them. Mm -hmm. And I just want to add, you know, Craig, you, you make such an important point about, you know, seeking help, but I just, and there, there's no easy solution to this. Obviously our healthcare system um, has some major problems. I just want to acknowledge that there are probably some people listening who are like, who struggle with access to care or making yep. an appointment, or maybe they can't arrange childcare and then, you know, schedule an appointment with a provider. So mm-hmm. we just want to acknowledge that, you know, yes, we're saying see, see care, but it's not always that easy. So just wanted to point that out. Absolutely. The social determinants of health are just really critically important to acknowledge here that you're exactly right. Not everyone has good access to care, period. And the, also the, those same sorts of social determinants are risk factors for the development of postpartum depression. So people with lower socioeconomic status, uh, people of color have more risk. 
single mothers, uh, basically all any and all of the social determinants of health are substantial risk factors for the development of postpartum depression. Also, intimate partner violence is also a significant risk factor. Uh, there's there's so many risk factors that also prevent people from seeking care. And then, as you said, the systematically, in many ways, our healthcare system is quite broken. And uh, so it is it is a very uphill challenge for anyone who's trying to seek help. So you beat us to the punch because you already started talking about some of these risk factors and underlying events and circumstances that can lead to someone to develop postpartum depression. But, um, you know, I'll quickly kind of summarize some and then hand it over to you, Craig, to elaborate. But of course, there's hormonal changes. We know hormones have a huge impact on biology, whether or not we fully understand the scope of everything that they're doing, because there's a lot of biological redundancy and crosstalk and complex signaling going on. But we know that those changes um, do have those those consequences. Of course, history of depression, you know, that can predispose someone to either develop or progress, I suppose you could say, to postpartum depression. A lot of these kind of emotional factors that Jess and, and Craig, you were mentioning. So these feelings of doubt, feelings of judgment, feeling like you're not enough, you're not doing things that are right. Also feelings about the pregnancy itself, right? You know, I mean, a lot of people find themselves pregnant where maybe they don't feel like they're equipped to be pregnant, to have a baby, to care for a baby. And there's not always options available um, to do what, what you might need to do to take care of your health. You know, fatigue and all sorts of other things. So lack of sleep, all these other things are kind of this vicious cycle. And then the other, you know, social determinants of health lifestyle, right? Access to health care, lack of community and familial support, isolation. So if you've recently relocated or if you started a new job or you lost a job or all of those sorts of things. And, you know, not to minimize the postpartum depression itself, but it also increases suicidal ideations and risk of suicide for for, um, people who are experiencing postpartum as well. So, Craig, maybe you can elaborate on some of these um, factors and, and some of the other things that might be important considerations. Sure, absolutely. There's a bunch that I'd, I'd like to highlight or underline there. So, you know, again, postpartum depression is incredibly common. One out of seven to one out of eight women experience it. And that actually makes it the most common complication associated with childbirth. So more than preterm birth, more than gestational diabetes, more than preeclampsia, ones that are taken very seriously, are screened for very vigorously in, in every person who's pregnant and uh, unfortunately, postpartum depression is not on average. A history of prior major depressive disorder is a huge risk factor. It increases the risk by about 20-fold. But for about half of women who end up developing postpartum depression, it's their first major depressive episode ever. So that's uh, it can really happen to anyone. Um, and again, not just the people who were listed in uh, meeting many or most of the risk factors. Any woman, any age, any socioeconomic status, et cetera, there is there is no discrimination there by the illness itself. And also um, another factor that I think is really important to mention is that the typically the first if there if a woman is on antidepressant medication and she finds out she's pregnant, the first thing she typically does is to stop the medication. And uh, and that 
is very understandable, but it turns out uh, not actually in line with, if in most circumstances, the the advice of the professionals are. So I'm uh, friends with many of the women who are the founding board members of the ISRP, the International Society for Reproductive Psychiatry. Their website is reproductivepsychiatry.com. And so the their recommendations are that it is best to, uh, with some exceptions for certain medications that have a greater risk that generally it's best to stay on the medications that kept the person well, because the risk of relapse with discontinuation of medications is just extraordinarily high. And a and that is not a hospitable environment to develop a fetus mm-hmm. in and then go on to give birth in, because again, a 20-fold risk of PPD, that's not a great situation. Wow. Um, Another interesting fact with that that, that the, the ISRP taught me, which really kind of blew my mind, is that, uh, you know, there's the pregnancy categories, which have been defunct now for many years, but are still looked at, which are more or less garbage, but uh, they're still often used. And uh, they're unfortunately used, especially in this category, because it's, let's say something was working for someone for a specific antidepressant. But it is a category C in the old nomenclature, uh, which, again, doesn't mean very much. But the category B might be another medication. A healthcare provider might say, oh, well, let me put them on a safer medication that they've, they've never been on before. Well, number one, you don't know if it's going to work. And why tolerate any risk if you don't know that there's going to be a benefit? Because all of medicine is risk-benefit. Uh, but then also, it, even if the second one does work, and even if it is purportedly, quote-unquote, safer in pregnancy you've now exposed that fetus to two different medications, not just one. So it would be preferable from their perspective as the, the experts in this, in this field to stay on the medication that is theoretically, quote unquote, less safe than switching someone to one that's more safe if the first one is working because one exposure is better than two. That was a complete mind-blowing moment for me a number of years ago when I learned that because that, if, if I was taught anything, which honestly, not I wasn't really taught a whole lot of this in medical school or training, anything we were kind of taught ad hoc was not that. It was that you know, take them off, put them on the, the safest medication, so on and so forth. Wow. And uh, it's really, there was no, little to no thought or evidence behind that. How, how long ago, sorry, and uh, I'm not trying to, to make you disclose your age, but how long ago were you in no. medical school? That's interesting. So medical school, I finished in 2005 and graduated my uh, psychiatry residency training in 2009. So not that long ago. I wonder whether, and I don't know that you know the answer to this, but whether that training has sort of evolved and maybe caught up with the evidence. Um, I sure hope so. But in terms of the pregnancy categories, definitely yes. And you know, I was uh, that was roughly around the time that that happened, and so we did acknowledge that, but. There's a difference between what we acknowledge cognitively and what we actually do when we're found in a certain situation. We revert back as human beings generally to what we know and what we're comfortable with. And certainly, I think in the community, there's still a lot of use of that uh, that old system. But training programs uh, no longer teach that for sure. So so Andrea brought up suicide. And obviously, that Mm -hmm. is something that that we certainly hope, hope to avoid. I just wanted to share some um, statistics here, and then maybe we could talk a bit about about suicide among um, those who suffer from postpartum, um, and and ways that we can, of course, uh, try to avoid. And maybe, that. yeah, maybe before we yeah. we do that, you know, obviously that can be triggering for people. You know, mm. I lost my brother to suicide, but. There is no evidence that talking about suicide increases the likelihood of someone who is 
experiencing suicidal ideations mm-hmm. to actually complete suicide. So talking about it is actually helpful because it can bring awareness to friends and family and loved ones who maybe are not maybe as observant or seeing some of those signs. Um, so that Thank is you. why we're going to talk about it. Yeah. Thank you for that. And also not just putting it on the family being less observant, but also one thing that, that often happens is that the person who has made the decision to go ahead with a, a plan for suicide, they feel better. Yeah. Because they've reached a decision and yes. they uh, they see the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, and so it can be very misleading. Yeah. And the family thinks, "Oh my gosh, they've turned a corner." They've, right. Yeah, they've, they've um, pulled themselves really out better. of that that cloud. Yeah, for sure. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And we will, of course, link to some resources um, in in our show notes. I uh, just wanted to say that as well. Yeah. So, up to twenty percent of postpartum deaths are due to suicide and suicide during pregnancy and the postpartum period is often attempted through more lethal methods than suicide in the general female population. And of course, we've, I'm sure, you know, we've seen some cases in the news of maternal filicide, Mm -hmm. which is when a mother kills her child or children due to severe maternal depression within 12 months of delivery. So I think, again, this just really underscores uh, the diagnosis and early intervention for uh, severe postpartum. But Craig, do you want to elaborate on this or maybe can we talk about this for a little bit? Sure, absolutely, because um, it is very important. So, yeah, twenty percent of of uh, postpartum deaths are accounted for by suicide. But fortunately, there's not that many postpartum deaths with uh, w- with the healthcare system that we have. So, it is a. I don't want to scare women out there who might be thinking, "Oh my gosh, what is that? Does that mean there's a twenty percent chance I'll die by suicide if I?" if I have a baby or if I have postpartum depression. So it is certainly to be taken seriously. But also another factor is that the the filicide part, uh, there was actually even recently in the past several months, a pretty high profile case in uh, New York of a of a reproductive psychiatrist herself who, who had that happen. And that is much more often associated with uh, postpartum psychosis as opposed to pure postpartum depression. And postpartum psychosis it can uh, come on top of depression, but postpartum psychosis is much more associated with bipolar disorder, actually, um, and is also much more rare. Postpartum psychosis is is much, much more rare as opposed to the one out of seven that may experience postpartum depression than somewhere in the, in the range of one or two out of a thousand uh, women giving birth could have postpartum psychosis. But it is uh, very striking that, as you mentioned, the for, in terms of suicide, the, the means do generally uh, tend to be much more lethal um, by firearm or by another highly lethal means, uh, as opposed to uh, when looking at suicide attempts writ large, then there's, there's a wide range. Uh, and that is really not well understood at all, uh, why that tends to be the case for women with postpartum psychosis and why that... Uh, or with su- uh, suicide attempts and postpartum depression. But uh, that's the kind of the scary part is that the attempts are more likely to succeed because they're using more lethal means, sadly. So, but all the more reason that we should be making sure we should be screening for depression in the antenatal period at birth and in the postpartum period to make sure that women who are at risk and who are, are suffering from postpartum depression are getting recognized and treated. Yeah. Because we, while we can't necessarily present, prevent all suicides, and I lost my uncle to suicide uh, myself back in 2020 um, and from major depressive disorder, then 
we certainly at least have a fighting shot if we are recognizing the onus and we are doing our best to treat the onus. Yeah, that's a perfect segue, right? We talked about identification, uh, screening, risk factors. So, you know, we know when someone should seek care is ideally they should, it it should be kind of ongoing monitored, right? Anytime someone has a baby, they're seeing a healthcare provider and those, you know, ideally should be getting screened for signs of postpartum depression. And we kind of talked about those when someone is identified to have postpartum depression, how do we how do we treat that? How do we manage that? You know, and and um, you know, I mean, I want you to kind of talk about historically and what you found yeah. to be most effective. But we do have to talk about um, the new FDA approved um, medication for postpartum depression as well. You bet. Well, going back historically, it was not a great scenario because up until 2019, there were there were no FDA approved treatments for postpartum depression. And the only treatments that we had at all were the standard uh, antidepressants, the SSRIs, SNRIs, so on and so forth, that are were only studied and approved for major depressive disorder. And if those if those worked phenomenally well for major depressive disorder, maybe that wouldn't be such a bad thing. But there's a lot of issues with just treating regular major depressive disorder with the traditional antidepressants. They I have. Uh, relatively low response and remission rates, and it takes a while for them to work. You know, we, uh, it's the, the very frustrating thing because people don't come in to see a psychiatric provider or to see a primary care provider who's going to treat something psychiatrically. It really almost always until that they're at the end of the rope. They don't come in for uh, early on, uh, unfortunately. It's usually when they can't take it anymore, they're at risk of losing their job, their marriage, something of that nature that they need help yesterday. And it's four to six weeks, six to eight weeks before we can see a benefit most of the time with most of the traditional antidepressants. So especially for, as I mentioned, postpartum depression earlier, that all the compounded pressure on a woman to take care of everything she took care of before she had a baby and a brand new life that is almost completely dependent upon her, four to six weeks is an eternity. So. Of course, because none of the traditional antidepressants are approved, they're all off-label, but that's that's all we had. So uh, they they were used. Uh, and then prior to that, the SSRIs, you know, tricyclic antidepressants, et cetera. But in 2019, then there was, I, I'd say it wouldn't be uh, overselling it to call it really a breakthrough. There was a, a treatment approved for postpartum depression called, uh, the generic name for it is Brexanolone. And Brexanolone is it, what's exciting for a number of reasons. One is that it's the first medication approved for a psychiatric indication that was based upon a biological theory. And this goes back to the hormones that were mentioned earlier. And uh, I, we, I wanted to kind of delineate that a little bit more. So the two that we think of most often, there's many that change with, uh, with the pregnancy period and then postpartum. But really, the big two are estrogen and progesterone. And they, they peak going up into the birth, and then they both decline pretty rapidly, uh, ap- really immediately after birth. Uh, estrogen does not have a very strong linkage, though, with, with postpartum depression. Uh, a number of studies have looked at that, and there were not significant differences in overall estrogen levels or the rate of estrogen withdrawal between women with postpartum depression and women uh, who are healthy controls. And because of that, then a lot of research had gone into the progesterone theory and not necessarily progesterone itself, but a primary active metabolite, which is allopregnanolone. 
that's the one that was focused on the most in the research. Uh, uh, in addition to being a, uh, well, a hormone is one word for it. Uh, and it's also a neural steroid because it does have effects in neurologically and it does th so through the GABA receptor. So the neurotransmitter GABA is the major inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain. The major excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain is uh, glutamate. And I, I think about them, uh, the glutamate and GABA, they're like the Fred and Ginger of the brain. Wherever you find one, you're going to find the other one. And they do a beautiful dance with each other when, at least when things are going well. But when they get dysregulated, then that is, uh, we believe, to be a source of a lot of problems uh, psychiatrically and, and neurologically as well. And so allopregnanolone has uh, the ability to activate certain uh, specific GABA receptors. And that's one of the reasons why it was focused on for the development of brexanolone, which is a derivative of uh, allopregnanolone. A lot of great news. It worked very well. It worked very quickly. It is, but the not as great news is that it's a 60-hour IV infusion. So not feasible for of, a ton of people. Yeah. Unfortunately, actually, one of the women I'm friends with who's on the ISRP board, she uh, has done it had done uh, a very extensive uh, use of, of bruxanolone in her practice. Um, but it's you have to really be uh, very committed to providing it as a treatment because it has to be it can't be at home. It has to be in a healthcare setting. Usually that's in a hospital setting. However, my friend, uh, her name is Rachel Dalthorpe. She's a perinatal uh, a women's mental health psychiatrist. And so she actually offers it in her clinic. She does have the round the clock uh, monitoring with healthcare providers, like with nurses and things like that. She gets a group together, usually on the weekend of moms who are candidates for it. And they do it. Uh, wow. She batches several of them up at a time. So um, it is possible, but the, by and large, the most common way in the country to get it is that you have to be admitted to the hospital right. to do it, unfortunately. Right. And th that's not optimal for uh, obvious reasons. So while uh, it has, uh, and 60 hours is it, that's all the treatment is. And then, that, then the, for, for it is efficacious in many or most uh, of women who are taking it and they don't need to continue treatment. It's just the 60 hours and that's it. So that uh, also, unfortunately, it came out later in 2019. And so that ran right up smack into COVID. And that really took the wind out of the uh, even a lot of the centers who yeah, had I mean, set up to do it initially. Every all the resources to deal with, you know, mm -hmm. intravenous, you know, medication administration, outpatient, inpatient. You've completely diverted those to dealing with you know, the next public health crisis. But on the other hand, though, it's not like we stopped doing chemotherapy during COVID. Uh, you know, this women's health uh, treatment is the one that got the resources pulled away from it, That's which is true. the song remains the same yes. in many ways yes. that unfortunately women's health and mental health is deprioritized compared to other uh, fields and other genders yes. <laughs> in many cases, sadly. That's a great um, point. So, so, um, you know, what you, you said that remission was, was, um, you know, very, very high with, um, Brixanolone. What, what percentage were, were, was being seen with this and, and maybe you can kind of lead us into the new Zoranolone, which, um, spoiler, I'm going to spoil it. It's oral. <laughs> it's not IV. Um, but maybe, maybe, um, you can kind of pave the way for for that development. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, so numbers. I, I don't recall the specific numbers off the top of my head, uh, but th they were they were pretty high for a treatment which, again, had no treatments previously that were approved. And if, if people did get better, then it took weeks to months to do so. 
So that was really the breakthrough that it was able to very quickly resolve or at least improve the symptoms for, for these women and they could get back to the rest of their lives. But even even if there had been no COVID, it's still going to be limited uh, by that, that by being 60 hours away from your baby, away from the rest of your life and uh, things of that nature. So there really did need to be a oral uh, successor uh, to, to this medication. And the same company who developed the IV version did uh, start work even before that was approved already on a oral version of it. Again, another deriv- a derivative of allopregnanolone. And this one was called... Uh, Zuranolone was the uh, is the generic name for it, and that was approved by the FDA back in August of this year. So uh, the the trials, the data looked uh, fairly comparable in terms of the ability for it to uh, to work quickly and for it to have high rates of response or remission. Uh, it's a fourteen day course, so instead of sixty hours, with uh, because IV it's one hundred percent bioavailability. The oral, uh, while oral, because that's actually that I should mention, why not just take oral over-the-counter supplements of allopregnanolone? Those are available at certain um, places that one can uh, obtain supplements. The problem is, is that it's virtually negligible bioavailability. So almost none of it actually gets to the, the, after the first pass metabolism, certainly almost none of it gets to the brain. So it's not a, a potentially effective strategy. So that's why there had to be derivatives of it. And so uh, the uh, the Zeralone, its oral bioavailability is much better, and uh, but still requires 14 days of treatment. But once again, that's it. 14 days of treatment, uh, taking the medication once a day, and that is the entire course. And generally, there are no other treatment may be required. Uh, it's on an individual basis, however. If it's a woman who had major depressive disorder prior to being pregnant and giving birth, then if they were on an antidepressant before, well, they're probably going to be on an antidepressant still to maintain uh, and prevent future episodes. And Zoranolone, as approved, can be given either alone or in conjunction with a, another traditional antidepressant. Um, it was also studied as a uh, to, as an accelerator as well. What if you started the a new oral antidepressant and Zoranolone at the same time? Well, you get a faster response with Zoranolone, and then you only take it for 14 days, and you continue on with the uh, with just the other traditional antidepressant. So it's very versatile in, in that regard. The benefits started to be seen by day three, which uh, they, is actually 48 hours after the first dose. So within two days of Zoran alone, there started to be measurable and in some cases statistically significant improvements versus placebo. So incredibly different from what we're used to with any uh, other or antidepressant. It's incredible, right? The data are striking and it's, you know, it's it's really impressive that there are these options that can now help um, people address postpartum depression. You know, the question that's going to come up, and I'm sure you know it's coming. So this was approved for postpartum depression. You know, why can it be used off-label for major depressive disorder? Why will it not be or will it be? evaluated for major depressive disorder. And I, you know, I'm pretty sure what you're going to say, but I feel like that's going to be a question that our listeners are going to want answered. So it's actually even more interesting than that, because not just uh, will it be uh, evaluated for major depressive disorder, it already has been. So that clinical development program was run in parallel with the postpartum depression studies. They were submitted to the FDA at the same time. There were two positive trials of Zoranolone in standard major depressive disorder, non-peripartum, and it did show benefit. 
And it submitted to the FDA at the same time, only came out with an approval for postpartum depression, however. So we, uh, those of us in the psychiatric community were really kind of expecting that it was going to get both FDA approvals. And uh, I was actually listening to your show not too long ago, and there was the uh, the hematologist who used to be in the in the FDA and talked about and, and your titles as always are phenomenal. <laughs> A spoonful of safety makes the medicine go down. That uh, that the number one goal of FDA is safety. Efficacy uh, came on later in the mission plan of the FDA, and uh, still it, efficacy is always important, but safety is the number one priority. Zoranolone was no less safe in major depressive disorder than it was in postpartum depression. However, the efficacy was not as robust. It was there, it was statistically significant, but it was not uh, above the uh, threshold that usually we see in most um, antidepressants. It used the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale, and usually a, a two-point difference between the medication and placebo is kind of considered the floor of what is um, maybe clinically relevant. Um, and it hit 1.9 uh, in one of the studies difference. Well, A, that's not much different. And B, that's, that's the mean of a large group. Individuals have widely variable responses. And so uh, it's really, to me, quite a shame that we, as a, as a healthcare community, we're not given the ability to use this medication in an on-label fashion because, unfortunately, um, while the FDA doesn't regulate the, the practice of medicine, they kind of almost do because FDA approvals have been weaponized against healthcare providers by managed care. And if something's not FDA approved, it is virtually impossible to get it covered by um, by insurance. And for a new branded medication, whatever it may be, that's, that makes it more or less out of reach for virtually anyone. And so in the midst of a mental health crisis, in a suicide epidemic, to take away a potential tool that could get someone better possibly uh, within 48 hours, only have 14 days of treatment at all. I mean, think about how much stigma that could reduce. You don't have to worry about after two weeks, you don't have to worry about someone finding a bottle in your medicine cabinet and saying, oh my gosh, what is what is that? They're taking antidepressants. Is What does that mean? Are they? Is there something wrong with them? Are they crazy, quote unquote? All the negative stigma that goes along with it that could really have broken down a lot of barriers for people who were afraid of uh, seeking treatment or taking the treatment for major depressive disorder. Yeah, or just, that's, um, that's you know. That's more out of reach for the time being. The, 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 for me, I think the thing that's most confounding is the timetable, right? You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I've tried, who even knows at this point, all the antidepressants under the sun. Yeah. And, you know, I found one that, kind of helps a little bit, but it wasn't until I was diagnosed with ADHD that I was like, oh, well, that makes sense why not things weren't working as well as they should. But, you know, like people who are in a depressive crisis, mm -hmm. they don't necessarily have the patience to wait six to eight weeks to maybe see if that one, right. one med is going to have an effect. And then if not, then they have to switch to something else and try again. And it's this mixed bag. Whereas this one, you know, you start to see some benefits in a few days and, and by two weeks you can really evaluate, well, is this going to help? Is this not going to help? And so, you know, it does seem particularly if it's, you know, as safe as the other options, you know, to not have this as a tool in the toolkit, when we know that kind of the world of psychiatric medications are not as cut and dry as, okay, take an antibiotic, your bacterial infection is gone. Yeah. This is so frustrating. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, go on, Craig. You were, you were going to say, I'm... Well, yeah. and on a personal note, <laughs> yeah. my uncle that I mentioned took his life in 2020. So he had struggled with MDD his whole life and he finally found an antidepressant that did work for him. 
And after some period of time, he was at, when he was doing well, he decided like many people do that maybe I don't need this anymore. And uh, unfortunately, he did decide to go off of it. And we found that after the fact, we found that three days before he took his life, then he did go and refill that medication. But it was too late because oh it didn't work God, fast enough. I'm so sorry. So if a medication like Xeranolone had been available, I mean, no one knows. But, you know, if he had seen improvement in that 48 hour period, maybe that would have given him enough hope, a spark of hope to, to hang on and to stick around. I mean, and how many times does that same scenario potentially play out across this country? Yeah. Uh, these, we're, we're seeing record rates of, of completed suicides uh, per the most recent data that's been released. Uh, we're reaching all time highs almost every year. Oh my God. And when a, a medication that again has been shown to be, if it was safe enough for postpartum depression, and there are there are risks associated with it to be sure. There's some people can get, uh, there's a box warning for sedation and there's some restrictions around that. But uh, you know, it was, it's no less safe than it was, it is for postpartum depression. Right. The safety and tolerability data were in lockstep more or less. So if it was safe enough for postpartum depression, it, it obviously must have been safe enough for overall approval. And uh, it just it, not hitting the efficacy criteria that are unwritten, apparently, you know, because we don't actually know what FDA thinks. Even the, right. the guest you had some time back said, you know, I'm not there now. I don't know exactly what they're thinking. I can tell you about my experience when I was there. Right. So we don't exactly know that all their rationales, but it's just really disappointing that just yeah. not to have that tool. Uh, and have it more or less taken away from us for the time being. Yeah, right. I'm incensed right. hearing That's this. What, <laughs> yeah, no, is there, are we... I was going to say, I mean, they're yeah. probably prob probably trying to do a larger cohort or yeah. a follow-up study or something would be my, my best estimation and maybe resubmitting with supplemental data or something like that. Maybe, Craig, you can talk about that, the future direction of, of some of these um, indications. Yeah, so there's actually two companies that par have partnered together on the development, and what they've uh, said uh, publicly is that they they've not given up on it, and that they are still looking to see what the path forward is. Um, the, the submissions to the FDA are are huge events. I mean, it's upwards of a million pages, page equivalents of paper. It's all electronic now, but you know they're they're huge amounts of work, and so they're they have, they're probably conducting other analyses and figuring out, okay, what do we need? They're still probably in discussions with FDA about, well, if we did this, would that be good enough? If we did that? And it, it's it's really complicated. And this only happened roughly three months ago. So, um, but like I said, the good news is that they, uh, from what they're saying, uh, are pursuing a potential path forward for it uh, in major depressive disorder for some point in the future. Craig, Thank you so much for everything that you've shared. Um, this is a heavy topic and probably heavier than um, most of our podcast episodes, but one that is so critically important. Um, and again, we will share resources in our show notes for anyone going through this. And, you know, again, here, Andrea and I, we're both, we've, again, we've been super open about our struggles with depression, anxiety, and other mental health issues. And, you know, I, I it's funny when, when we share that people are often like, we never know. And it's, you can be high functioning. You can present as happy and extroverted. That doesn't mean that you're not struggling. Right. As if there's a scarlet letter exactly. of, oh, you look normal, but you, you have mental health conditions. How can that, well, yeah, people People with mental health conditions are normal. Exactly. Exactly. And honestly, for those who are watching this on YouTube, you might have seen as Craig, you were saying some things and I was 
crying. Honestly, I was sitting over here getting teary eyed. You know, you're describing that feeling of being at the end of your rope. I mean, unfortunately, so many of us, myself included, have experienced that. And it's just, it's really a shame that there is so much stigma and that especially, you know, on this topic of postpartum depression and and women specifically, like we're always, it's like things are just, oh, she's overreacting. She's being hysterical or, oh, she should just deal with it. You know, she's running the household. We have to stop that nonsense. Um, And as you said, I mm-hmm. love what you just said. It's it's normal. It's not, you know, we, we shouldn't be made to feel like we're abnormal, you know? Um, and we're, yeah. We have an issue just as if we're dealing with a, a, a physical illness, right, that needs to be diagnosed and treated. And, and there should be no stigma with that. I mean... No one ever says, oh my gosh, you have diabetes? I never would have known. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. So, so Craig, any last thoughts? I I know we're we're getting uh, close to wrapping here, Andrew. We'll turn it over to you. But is there anything else that you would like our audience to to know or that you'd like to share with them? You know, I I just believe knowledge is power. And so I mentioned uh, reproductivepsychiatry.com. So for the healthcare professionals who are out there, if you're interested in joining, becoming a member of ISRP, And then one more link that is extremely important that I put out there all the time, womensmentalhealth.org. So that is run by Harvard's Mass General Hospital. And there is the National Pregnancy Registry for uh, various psychotropic medications. So antidepressants, antipsychotics, mood stabilizers, and stimulants. So uh, women can go and register there and the the, uh, Mass General will follow them throughout the pregnancy. And that's the only, and also even uh, women who are pregnant who are not on psych- those psychotropic medications because they need healthy controls as well. And so when they gather enough information on a specific medication on a specific trimester, which with match controls as well, then they then they publish that data. So that's the only way we're ever going to get real data on pregnancy uh, psychotropics in pregnancy. Also, there are educational resources there, both for uh, for healthcare providers and for patients. And so really, it's a phenomenal resource for anyone. And again, that's womensmentalhealth.org. Uh, it's it's really something that certainly every healthcare provider should know about. And I think more of the general population should know about as well. I love that. Thank thank you, Craig. And, and we, of course, will also link those in, in the show notes of the episode. And, and I love your little plug for participating in clinical research. Yes, even if you're not on medication, they always need healthy control. So if you're mm-hmm. pregnant and you want to be a piece of data, um, check it out and we'll, yes. we'll link that. Craig, I can't thank you enough. Um, obviously, you know, we've talked about a lot of these topics before, but it's so great to be able to share this, this really, really important information with our listeners. And thanks for, for giving everyone your time today. Thank you everyone um, for tuning in. And we hope you learned a thing or two. We're pretty sure you did. And if you want to support our efforts and help us grow uh, the impact and reach of unbiased science, feel free to support us in whatever way you deem fit. Um, You can send us a donation on our website through our Venmo account. You can pick up some science-themed merch on our website. That's www.unbiasedscipod.com. And we do have our bi-weekly newsletter on Substack, which is theunbiasedscipod.substack.com. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube because we're recording our beautiful faces on on YouTube video now and all of our social handles um, at unbiasedscipod. Catch you next time. I'm on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Woo!